Never imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for joining. Tonight's a very special guest. One of my uh, one of my favorite all-around musicians in music. One of the most unsung heroes, I think. Uh, incredible utility player, arranger, uh, <laughs> and, and, and utility player. <laughs> <laughs> well, utility infielder Sorry. is what we would call it in, in baseball, where you can play any position. Uh, is what I was thinking of. of but uh, yeah, the, the one and only Mr. Mick Harvey. <laughs> Welcome to the show, man. This is great. It's it's been a, a eventful week. I I feel like it'd be disingenuous to uh, not Matt not mention the passing of Anita. Uh, um, yeah, sure. No, absolutely. Um, it might uh, explain if anyone's listening to the interview and I just start drifting off into uh, space and lose my train of thought. It's uh, the whole week's been a bit like that. So, um, well, the last four days, anyway, since we we learned that she died. So, it's been uh, pretty challenging, and I think it's, it's it'll be a bit challenging the next few days as well. It's a, it's a process that you just, you know, just takes time. So she seemed uh, like an incredibly uh, special person. Uh, respected. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that's the word. You, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know about that because she's, for me, she's, she was just, you know, one of my closest friends for decades. So it's, um, it's, uh, it's difficult processing that. It's just, you know, a thing that always people out there will be aware. You know, everybody experiences this unless they're incredibly fortunate. It's just something that happens. And when it happens, it's always a bit of a shock. And you just have to uh, figure out how to deal with it in your own way and give it time, the time it needs. That's all. Yeah. So it's, um, it's pretty fresh. So uh, probably... Uh, it, it, you know, we'll just if I'm talking about other things, I'll I'll just move and just be in that zone, and we can chat about other stuff. Sure, it's, sure. Uh, I, you know, it's been uh, taking up all my most of my thought patterns for the last few days. That keeps just being present. So, um, but uh, it is. Well, we'll see how we go. Thanks, Kung. <laughs> well, so, sorry, drifting on there, but it's it's a little bit like that. You you just drift on into the next thought about what that what that means and what the loss is and you know 
everybody that's calling you all day and talking about it and it's pretty uh it's pretty all uh encompassing in the especially in the early stages when the loss is kind of recent so i'm in that kind of moment but let's go with the let's see what we can do well it seems it seems like she meant quite a bit to many people and uh you know when people like that leave us it's it leaves a void and you know yeah yeah no she meant a lot to a huge number of people which is becoming even more apparent as uh the messages and you know the discussions and the, the the conversations i'm having with people keep coming in and um she really made made her ma whoever met her was just immediately struck by uh the unique kind of nature of her presence and <laughs> her way of doing things and her way of talking about things and uh she was, made a huge impression on everybody really who met her and she was quite uh you know a very very special person so uh, it's it's clear she had even people who haven't haven't seen her for 20 years or something yeah. was are still just very deeply affected because they still felt like they knew her really yeah. they still felt a very close connection with her even though she they hadn't weren't seeing her or even in contact with her so it's a bit she had that kind of uh impact on people and and she felt that way about people too she felt still very even the the, the immediate daily connection wasn't important to her it was she her things with people were deeper than that it was about a spiritual connection and understanding and that carried on you know that she maintained that kind of sense through the years, regardless of whether she was in contact. She was a very impractical person, so she very often wasn't in contact with people for years who she loved deeply and felt considered to be close friends. She just didn't find the way to keep in practical contact with them, but the, it made no difference to the intensity of the of the connection. She, she was that kind of person. So anyway, that's... You can ask more about her if you want to. We can make the interview about Anita if you'd like. But, um, you might. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I want to be <laughs> so, want to be mindful you know, of your uh, of your feelings uh, on the matter. But I do think it's great that you know what recorded material there is of her. It seems like you were a key part in drawing that out and uh, assisting to kind of bring that into the, into the world in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yes, I was. So it's it's. You know, I suppose even I, I tried to downplay that slightly on her two solo albums because I really wanted them to be about her. Right. Um, and I, you know, I think on the second one I'm credited with producing, and you know, we co-wrote a lot of the songs together. But it's and uh, even um, Dirty Dirty Pearl, which is a kind of compilation of a lot of things she did. I, I kind of oversaw the entire project and made sure how it was put together and helped her do all of that and kind of uh, was involved in almost everything on there. I think there's only a couple of tracks I'm not on or producing or was in the band that worked with her or whatever. So, and even though it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag, that album, necessarily because it's a, a, a compilation of a lot of bits and pieces that had happened over the year, in a way that's partly representative of the way she operated. It was much right. harder to get her to do a coherent album that was actually recorded as a coherent album. So when we did uh, when we did um, Sex O'Clock in that way, it was very, very hard. I just had to keep working and believing that eventually she'd come in with some lyrics and 
and actually be able to go and stand behind the microphone because that avoidance of that went on for weeks, you know. So um, eventually one or two days popped up where she actually felt that she could do that and we had to capture it all and then, then continue working without her again. It was a bit like that. So, um, and then we finished the album thought, well, this is kind of brilliant album, you know, fantastic, kind of very uh, specific type of album. I could talk about the contents of that, but probably better if I don't go too far into that unless you want to. And uh, we got, we came to the release and, um, and they, uh, we said, so, uh, you know, are you going to do any interviews? You know, what, how are we going to promote this? And she said, no. <laughs> so <laughs> It wasn't happening, huh? <laughs> it was just like, no, nah, it's not happening. So it was a bit like, right, um, okay. And then people wonder why the album, you know, like didn't have any profile. I mean, it's very, it's entirely down to Anita. The album could have had a really good profile, yeah. but Anita was completely disinterested in promotion or being the center of attention she wanted the work to stand but in her extraordinarily impractical manner yeah. didn't relate the two things that you know <laughs> she well i suppose she's right in a way it should just stand in on its own anyway there's just so much noise out there it's really even back 20 years ago it was it was pretty hard to kind of get through that noise and get noticed and so anyway so that was an enormous <laughs> disappointment and i've read a couple of things more lately where you know people have talked about that how oh, this invisible album or the album that just fell away and got no attention, and assuming that there were other reasons for that, the, the only reason for that was because Anita just wouldn't do any promotion. <laughs> so um, what are you going to do? Yeah. Sin, there's no video for it that I can remember. Is there a video for anything? Mate, I can't remember. Anyway, it's a little consequence. The the album's kind of great, and but it did it did make a bit of a an impression on me about around doing more work with her. You know, a few years later when she actually came to me and wanted to, to do some more stuff, I was a bit like, well, Nita, I'm working on this album, <laughs> this album, sure, I, and I've got all this stuff I'm doing and I'm on tour and so, well, you know, the amount of work that I had to put into to create the, the recordings was kind of huge and um, a huge responsibility to somehow I just pulled back from... Uh, from, from uh, prioritising it, I guess, because yeah. I knew that it would just disappear. Right, <laughs> the album, and it's so the much recording work. wouldn't yeah. get an airing. And so I, I just kind of chose to work on things that would have more of a chance of being, of being put out there and being yeah. seen. So it's, you know, it's a weird option now. I wish I'd made 10 albums with her and hadn't cared, but, you know, too, it's too late now. Well, and, it, you know, there was... She seemed to loom large in a lot of uh, awesome art, and usually as sort of kind of almost on the periphery. Like uh, there, there was some love I saw earlier for the Intoxicated Man record, uh, you know, which I thought was I, sure. No, no. Well, she, obviously, she worked on Intoxicated. I, I brought, you know, obviously with the Gainsborough stuff. I needed yeah. a, I needed a female singer or a couple of female singers, and. Just can't do a sausage party. Anita was just the most obvious choice by about (laughs) 500 million miles. It's just like, well, Anita's going to be perfect, so she can do it. So she was right into it. It kind of was right up her alley with, you know, a lot of lyrics about intimacy and relationships and weird borderline sexy kind of things that, you know, are actually not just about that, but 
looking at a weirder side of it or asking questions about it. You know, I think Gunsport's a bit misunderstood in this area. Everyone just starting to treat him like he's a bit of an un-PC sleazebag or something. <laughs> a latch, and actually, yeah. <laughs> what's going on there, I mean, occasionally he slips into that inevitably because he's really investigating that area. Yeah. But there's a lot more to what he's writing than just this superficial notion of male sleaze. It's like much more complex. I think Anita understood that immediately too because and her, her the subject matter of her lyrics is very... Um, investigating those areas really um sometimes frivolously sometimes like having fun with it but but nevertheless it's around that subject and investigating that area and the emotional impacts of that and the, all those sorts of things you know in, in a kind of a really amazing no holds bar way it actually actually she didn't really mind if it went too far or um <laughs> in in a similar way, so she really understood the Gunsburg stuff, and she was she loved working on that. I think it was kind of, kind of slightly liberating for her, and to engage her in that type of thing, she really enjoyed it. Well, those songs, so, um, those songs have a yeah, a lot of love for that, and that, yeah, and quite rightly so, you know. The, the songs have a sound of being quite light, while sometimes addressing incredibly serious subject matter as well, which is kind of a hard. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard needle to thread uh, in a lot of ways. And I, I feel like he's kind of the master of, of, you know, doing something like, oh, that, that sounds airy and fun. Like, yeah, have you actually listened to it? Like, have you <laughs> listened, listened to what's yeah, being sung here? There's almost always uh, some sort of twist in the lyrics, which has a, a, a very uncomfortable side to it. Yes. It's like just actually, this is not just kind of nice and okay. I mean, even Chetem one on Blue, these kind of most famous song is very, very unusual in a lot of ways. It's really just a question the entire notion of physical love and yeah. what, <laughs> and it's, you know, treated as a kind of erotic exploration of just, you know, yeah, well, let's have a bit of a, you know, whatever about that. And it's, it's the whole thing's a lot more, a lot darker. And it's all, it's stuff's almost always like that, I think. And that's it, and that's the except maybe for C Sex and Sun. I'm not quite sure. I don't know if you know that song. I don't know. There that. are a few when he got into his disco era. Oh, which are, are pretty, <laughs> yes, I do. Pretty unbelievable. But I think he was a little bit lost in not caring anymore by them yeah, personally. Yeah. But that's just anyway. I won't go into that either. That's just a personal opinion, which is perhaps not so interesting to extrapolate on. Well, <laughs> since, since we're talking about intoxicated man, though, I mean, how do you, how did you? approach that material that has like such reverence and such uh you know the people it means so much to the people involved like how do, how do you approach that i mean obviously i've heard the record um, like it, but you know i suppose in some ways you're aware of that but you can't really let that uh, get in the way i mean I, on some levels i i was fortunate and i've said said this before you know back when the records came out that um uh I was fortunate that I was doing translations because there was a, an argument that could be made for simply translating it and adhering to as much of the original arrangements as I liked right. and keeping it through to the music, the musicality or whatever. So if I really liked an arrangement or, or a compositional structure that was there, which I did for most of the stuff from like, especially 68 through to 72, that kind of period, the music 
is fantastic in that period and he's, comp he's composing great stuff and I could actually just use whatever I wanted of the music. So in, in that way, I also then remained true to the original, I suppose, sure. on a certain level um, or true-ish to the original and was uh, because, uh, yeah, I was presenting them in English, which people haven't heard before and... Um, which uh, yeah was its own uh, you know, raison d'être. So anyway, right. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> well, and it's so, uh, you know I could, I could play with that, and but then in the end, I was also uh, quite happy to be quite disrespectful to his musical composition <laughs> anyway. When there was something that I didn't like, but there was a core of a song lyric idea that, that I did like, uh, for instance, with uh, overseas telegram or something, and we really just yeah. completely changed the music. So uh, there, there was quite a lot of that on on some of the recordings, actually. Well, quite I mean... After the first two albums in particular, because, you know, I probably dealt with most of the songs that I love the music of on the first couple of albums and uh, broadened out my my scope and my research for the other, the later. I know it's insane that I did four, but that's um, that's part of the... That was part of the process. Well, it, it, it seems as if there can also be a song that is fantastic as a song, but maybe the arrangement itself is just, you know, doesn't work. And, and like, yeah, well, it doesn't make really, less of really a good song. With, with Serge because he, he uh, notoriously, with, with people who've really looked at it closely, he was very concerned with how he wrote the song, but he was really, then after that, he really didn't, Lost interest. he did care, <laughs> but he didn't care much about how it was produced. He was quite happy just to hire in the current people who were arranging and producing what was uh, fashionable and get and record the songs that he'd written in that style. Yeah. So you sometimes do get some rather borderline things. But then, you know, taste with Serge was also, he was also um, quite willing to be tasteless. <laughs> so he'd allow that to happen. He'd allow that to happen at some phases of his, sure. his work. So, yeah, but he was very rigorous with his composition. I think personally, yeah. I think he was. Apart from when he stopped writing the music, like on the Cabbage Head and, and the Reggae albums, and he, he just actually didn't even really compose any music and just talked. <laughs> right. Because so he, he just lost connection with the music somewhere there, which for me is obviously. That's when I'm not interested because I don't hear, hear any connection with the music. Anyway, that's um, so you get my feeling. You, you got a lot of my feelings there about Serge and his work. <laughs> well, that's when he became the legend, Serge Gainsbourg, right? Yeah, he was like, okay. star thing. Yeah. And, uh, I think he just, uh, yeah, the disco stuff, and he d didn't even care about just being a horrible sexist pig with his lyrics and stuff <laughs> right. anymore. He's much more complex before that. What's he? What he's dealing with is really complex and. You know, people raise these issues now. And I, I can only really point at the or indicate that as far as I can see, he, he's been working with a lot of very, very intelligent women, mm -hmm. talented, intelligent, strong women, and all of them adore him. Yeah. So he's clearly not a sexist poor. Right. <laughs> he's clearly got something intelligent and very sensitive to offer to the uh the situation and they understand him in a great way. And, you know, they, I mean, you, you can read between the lines with that. It's quite obvious what's going on. Yeah. So, 
Absolutely. Well, and I think that it's it's you brought up an important point too that just by you know having the songs in in English, it's it's going to hit differently. It, it, they're going to you know. Yeah, it's um, and it's a it's a complicated area because his his lyrics in French are very clever, and some you know inevitably some of the some of the things lost in the translation that just happens. You can, you there are a few exceptions I would say in there where it's really everything's there. But um, in most cases, uh, you lose something. I mean, some someone made a clever quote once and said, you know, what's lost in translation is the poetry. And right. that's probably true. But fortunately, we're dealing with lyrics. Right. So we get <laughs> I mean, lyrics very often don't stand up very well as poetry when you remove exactly. the music anyway. So there's the kind of musical base. So you, you do actually, in my opinion, there's a huge amount of support for the the lyrics, not uh, losing a bit of the poetry. Whatever poetry was in there in the first place is arguable. So, um, yeah, yeah, and, and um, sometimes something yeah. is just kludgy or just doesn't doesn't hit the way that you know uh, you, you'd like it to. Yeah, well, I mean, I think with by the poetry to, I mean, the thing is obviously with the language, with any language, it's the way the words go together and. It, it creates another level. It creates another layer of, you know, you got the meaning and the, and the feel of the hot. But then, just which words you choose that go with which other words is really a large part of the poetry. And once you translate it, that you, you can't do that. You can't replicate that. Exactly, it's totally impossible. Simply, simply not possible to replicate that thing that a, an individual has in their relationship with their language and how those words right. work together in their system it doesn't, it's just impossible so that's lost there's no there's no way to do that you have to you have to then um uh, transfer it into a different set of words and right. a different set of connections that people with that mother tongue have with those words so that that's that's lost inevitably and the french are very very particular as we know <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Well, and I think one of the very, very, they're very, very fussy about their language as well, are, which yeah. you know is is fine. But they are they're very, very particular about it, and they love their language, and it's very important to them and to their identity. And so, a lot of people would just um, uh, think it's a stupid idea what I've done, and uh, other people are really, really excited and pleased. You know, French people just think it's fantastic what I've done. I get a lot of good feedback. But also the the larger portion of the French public would probably just consider it a complete waste of time. <laughs> sure, certainly. certainly. I, but I didn't do it for them. Yeah, so, you know, they didn't need me to do it. So that that's, it's you know, there's a, that's fine. Well, I don't mind. It, it occurs to me that it, it's, it seems like it's done with a, a certain amount of reverence, but just enough of the sort of the, the lack of caring about being precious about it. Right, like, well, and that's, and that's... I mean, it's um, yeah, lack of reverence is important because that was also an important aspect of his both his behaviour and his right. his work, of Serge's work. So, at any point where I'd start feeling like, oh, maybe I should be being, you know, then I could I could always invoke the spirit of Serge himself and say, you know. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on you. You, you may. It's, it's not. It's not on broadcast you know. radio anymore. Oh, you can. Sorry, it's, it's not, not on broadcast. You can swear all you like, sir. Oh, okay. You know, then the, you know, uh, I could just say, "Oh, fuck that," because Serge, <laughs> gonna, Serge wouldn't have been reverent about about it, confronted, being confronted with those sure. kinds of questions. He would have been 
directly irreverent about it. So anyway. He was probably a, a choice phrase or two for uh, as an answer for any of those questions, I'm sure. Well, I had that I had that ammunition in my back pocket if I if I felt questioned about that type of area. Anyway. Recently I finally uh, watched the autoluminescent documentary about uh, the mighty Roland S. Oh, yeah. Howard. And it mm-hmm. just reminded me of how brilliant the, that Pop Crimes record is. And I was wondering if you maybe could speak a little bit uh, to that. Uh, Roland S. Howard, personally, someone that, that, that looms very large as a figure, like as a you know quote-unquote guitar hero or whatever in my mind. But the birthday party came about at a time, you know, before, obviously before social media, but there was an air of mystery about everything. And so to have in that documentary things sort of laid bare like that, including all the old archival footage, which is very cool, the live footage, things along those lines. But I, I found it very cool that there was this, he was allowed this kind of like excellent last chapter to like do, do something awesome. I thought that was really beautiful. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was, uh, he was, he wasn't a prolific writer, so he had difficulty with um, with putting a lot of material together. That's why there's not a lot of recordings. That's why there's only two These Immortal Souls albums and two solo albums across what you could. I mean, he did a couple, some other things with, you know, Lily Lunch and, yeah. um, and uh, Nicky Sutton and stuff, and he did other things through those years. But effectively, there's four albums of based around principally around his writing, in a space of uh, what is that, twenty six years? So he wasn't a prolific writer, <laughs> and that was part of the problem. Bob Pollard was it, yes. <laughs> was part of the problem with him being a band leader and having an active uh, career, which was rolling on and turning over, which people need a lot of the time to see. If you're inactive, especially coming out of as he did, what's effectively a kind of cult underground band in a way on a lot of levels and certainly at the time the birthday party were very much in that kind of space although we felt like we were the best band in the world and all that sort of stuff but um which we maybe we were at the time but uh roland uh then didn't produce so when did the first these immortal souls album come out it wasn't that much later but it was like four years i mean yeah, the birthday party was only together for four years, and we made like all this. <laughs> and then crazy. Took so many, so much material. Roland came out, and for a lot of the people following what was happening, I suppose, and being you know, it was very uh, the eighties. There was a lot going on in the eighties, so it was a little bit like he already got left behind, and then yeah. he didn't call it Roland S. Howard, so it was a band that people had to familiarise themselves with. So he, he kind of lost a lot of ground there too. So somehow. The way he and I, I really respect that he wanted to it to be a band because he he understood right. the importance of a band which a lot of people don't but um, uh, he did and he respected that kind of structure and the input of other people into the music and what that brought and the the need to to honor that and he, he didn't want to just make a solo album he wanted to have a band and and the the benefits that that brings but he was at the same time probably organizationally and uh in in some sort of vision way not a particularly great band leader he was very <laughs> not much suited for that so, yeah exactly so it was a bit of a uh, there was a bit of a dilemma there and um you know then another it was another how many years three or four years passed before the second these immortal souls album and by that time people had drifted off the second 
album's just brilliant. Yeah. You know, it's a really fantastic record. So, um, yeah, so then there were just the two solo albums. So really that last, the Pop Crimes album came about a lot by the encouragement of other people uh, just trying to get Roland to do something. Yeah. Because he'd, he'd been quite unwell, um, you know, after uh, Teenage Snuff film, after the first solo album, which we made mostly together, and at least in the recording phase, we just basically recorded it together. Um, I, I kind of left and left him and Lindsay to mix it. I didn't really want to get caught up in all of that because we'd I'd done my job. I felt I'd done my job on that occasion. Right. And uh, um, the feeder after fight. That, he, he, sorry. <laughs> I said the feeder fight. You don't want to get too involved in the oh, this should be up here. This should be okay. Well, I, you just don't want too many people doing that. And I knew that Lindsay and Roland would have strong ideas about how it should be, and I, I trusted them. And at some point, it's too many cooks, and you just you need to know when to step out of the room. And I just felt well, that, that they, they'll know Roland will know exactly what to do, what how he wants it to be. It's his record, so. Um, uh, so I just I, I left then, but you know, probably eighty percent of that album was just recorded with me playing drums and him playing guitar. So yeah. that was the they were the bass. There was no one else in the studio. So um, uh, there were two two of the big songs we did with Brian Hooper playing bass. You know, Sleep Alone and, and Exit Everything. He's very identifiable bass playing. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, nice. But after that, what I was what I was getting to was the after. The teenage snuff film album he was quite unwell and um you know like a lot of people from the uh, late 70s early 80s and all the drug taking uh, they they'd they'd sort of uh, they had hep c or different problems and there were health issues and um so he was struggling with that a lot and uh writing even less <laughs> to go back to my early so really like it wasn't <laughs> But fortunately, some people really stepped in and encouraged, and I wasn't one of them, I'll say this, um, encouraged him to get back in the studio and, and record what he could and do more stuff, and uh, including uh, Jared Schlafik, who is the guy from Liberation Records. He really kind of um, got behind Roland and supported him in doing that. And Roland just asked me back in, I suppose, Teenage Snuff Film, having been artistically uh, very... Uh, successful from from our point of view, we were very happy with what we'd done. Uh, he asked me back in to play drums again, so um, I became involved again with JP Shiloh making that album, and then Brian Hooper came in again, again for like two or three songs, <laughs> and that identifiable bass again, yeah. and you know, um, so that was, uh, and the album is, I suppose, I, I, I have a different relationship with it. I kind of feel. Maybe it's um, the singing because I can I can sense how uh, Roland isn't as strong as he was. Yeah. So there's a kind of fragility, or his voice is a bit weaker than it was. And, and on on Teenage Snuff Film, he was uh, it's the strongest I heard him sing. I think his singing really carries the record in a great way. Whereas on Pop Crimes, it's a little bit it's a little bit more broken just physically. So. Um, uh, yeah, it just you know, it depends what you're listening to. For for me, Teenage Snuff Films, the kind of album that well, really gels it all, and it's the kind of peak of the thing. And Pop Crimes is a, a fantastic kind of swan song, and 
there's some great stuff on there. But even then, there's like how many covers are there on there? Oh, covers, I hate that term. Uh, how many uh, interpretations oh, a, are there on there? There's a, the uh, Towns Van Zandt song. You only, you only kind of wrote a, yeah, there's four songs. <laughs> one, of, one of them was from a, a re-recording of a song that didn't get on to Teenage Snuff. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, he might have written like five songs or something and two, two of them were done after the initial recordings because we needed two more songs. So we only had after... Nine years, he had three songs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's... So he wasn't prolific. But, I mean, he, but then in the end, you end up with Rollins, you know, a lot of people would be going, who cares about prolific? Quite right, too, because in the end, you just sit there. It's the same with the needle lane. You sit there and go, well, that's like the quality, it. not the quantity. It's kind of what you've got there that's the most important thing. You know, you can bang, bang out 100 albums, like, you know, and... Well, I just think about sorry. No, I was gonna say <laughs> the like the golden age of bloodshed. Like that's just a fantastic uh like like closer. Well it was probably the last song he wrote. Yeah. To fit to complete the album. So it is that song is a reflection that exactly if I'm if I remember this rightly with the lyrics, it's kind of really about where he is in his life and that it's all, you know, it's kind of uh, um yeah, beautiful song, and um, and it's the one he came back in with to yeah. say, this, "Yeah, this is the song I've got to complete the album." Right. That's all I've been able to write. <laughs> but that was, you know, brilliant song. So, anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, exclusively stick to the modeling stuff, but I, I just, I found no, no, the, no, the movie that's, very that's, compelling. That's fine. And Roland's guitar playing was, uh, you know, hugely influential. Obviously, he, yeah. he kind of, um, while I was uh, being forced to kind of scrabble around and do be the utility man, as you described me. Uh, <laughs> I show. say it with love. And even in the birthday party that was beginning, and I, my concern was more about the whole picture and the whole sound Roland having been taken away from the role he wanted to have as the singer or the singer and one of the major songwriter was almost put in the position where he could really focus on his guitar playing yeah. and expand it and develop it and I think that's really how it happened he was just the focus into the detail of what he was doing with the guitar was available to him and he spent a couple of years really honing that and working out exactly enough. So he came out with that amazing guitar playing style and sound yeah. and so forth, which has been hugely influential. And I, you know, I was just on the other side of the stage playing guitar along with them a lot of the time and re really complimentary because we really understood each other. But I was also just giving him the room to go a lot of the time, you know. I mean, I just think about how you know, just beamed from Neptune, like the friend catcher was right. Of just like, what on earth? Like amazing. What, <laughs> like what is happening uh, right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were, and we were enjoying that. It was good fun. And then, you know, you couldn't, you, so when Roland's coming out with guitar and that's his good contribution with the, all the kind of tremolo feedback madness, um, you don't want to have too many other people going crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, you got to hold you it need, down. You got to hold the song you down. You need to give that a bit of space, or you'll or you'll squash it. You start squashing it or reducing it. You need to give that all the room it needs to make its statement. And yeah. it's, uh, so you know, we were all well and truly on board. It was kind of uh, so that sort of stuff was fantastic to be engaged with. Yeah. 
Well, I hit on something I wanted to talk to you about, which is which is the difference between you know playing guitar with him and holding those song, holding the song down versus you know playing drums. Like, how do you approach uh, those different kinds of space? Because they're they're very obviously very well, different instruments, and you interact in yeah, different ways to them. That's funny. Um, I, I I don't really. I don't really feel like they're any. I, I know they're different on a on a practical level and what they what they're putting into the song as a whole. But I, I don't really think about uh, or approach them as being particularly different. Um, I suppose my my, my position is when, when I'm, whatever I'm doing, I'm just trying to um, uh, get inside what's happening and under, understand. The song and what I can do to give it something that makes it even better than it already is <laughs> from what I'm doing. I know it's, it's the sort of same thinking in a way. I know you've got very different tools sometimes, but it's the same yeah. thought processes about what I can be doing. So it doesn't, it never strikes me as being particularly different. Might be different if you gave me a flute, because I wouldn't. Be able, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to play it for one thing. A, but, pan, um, a pan flute, perhaps. <laughs> and I don't like the flute. No offense to any flute players out there, but I'm not a fan of the flute. But it, it, the band. It, the, <laughs> Sorry to all the banjo players out there and all the guitar players who love their banjo, but I, I don't like them. Anyway, go on. Well, it occurs to me. It occurs to me that you think of a lot of the arrangement and serving the song uh, as sort of the greater well, whole. I suppose that's that's what I became kind of uh, inadvertently by just being put onto different instruments because nobody else had the guts to play <laughs> something they didn't know how to play. I just ended up learning a few different instruments and realizing that I actually had an aptitude for that and I, I could uh, and that I could learn how to play them in a rudimentary fashion that could contribute to the the situation. And that just put me in a position which a lot of young musicians are not in, where they're able to listen to everything that's happening because I'd lose track even of what I'd been playing sometimes. And uh, Roland even acknowledged that in, in an interview that I read with him, which was you know one of the biggest compliments I've been paid actually. Just that he he just said, well, it's great having Mick around because he listens to the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> most musicians sit there listening to their instrument. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned not to do that very early. Right. So I suppose in a way I became, that's why I became someone very useful in the scheme of things with, well, probably with the birthday party, although that was really a big group effort and everybody was contributing and I, I wasn't uh, as in charge of the production, the arrangements as I came to be. But, um, even then I was learning that craft, I suppose, learning that thing about being, listening to the whole thing, understanding, getting inside the whole thing that's happening. And um, and that, that has a lot to do, yeah, then with that becomes a thing where I had a, came to have a good sense of arrangement. I just learned arrangement sort of on the fly, effectively, I suppose. I just, just figured out how to piece it together. And... Um, started doing you know like string arrangements and everything but I, I actually feel that a, a lot of um a lot of my internal understanding of that or having the ears to hear how things need to be put together 
really came from being exposed to a lot of classical music when I was mm. young. Okay. So that may sound surprising, but uh, I, I, I kind of really feel, you know, my dad just used to play all and everything, you know, my, uh, Beethoven and Bartok and Wagner and Mozart. I don't like all of it. In fact, a lot of it I can't stand, you know. <laughs> sure. I call it... I call it fiddle faddle, you know. It's just everything's just going. It's just like really annoying. But um, it, nonetheless, the, they're the kind of great masters in a way. And what you're hearing, what they're doing, is how they've constructed all the counterpoint and all these sorts of things that are really can can be quite complex technically, but which are also come from a very natural. They always come from a starting point of just how people felt things should be put together, what felt and sounds right sure. and how things blend together and how they balance. And it's all just come out of trial and error. So here being exposed to so much of that when I was young, I, said, it really, I think it really helped me with uh, just hearing everything. Well, and even if you don't care a, for it. I'm not as a rock musician to say that. People won't like that, but it's, it was actually <laughs> very good. So it was just a good oral grounding, you know. In, in and, and I was in the church, of course, too, and a lot of church music and this sort of stuff. And it's, but it's, it's all got the, a lot of it also has really the simple elements that you need. You can go, some of it's quite, you know, a lot of Beethoven becomes quite minimal in a right. beautiful way very powerful way so um uh a lot of it stayed with me and that's been uh, was probably very very helpful for me i think hearing so much of that when i was young and i think even with the composers maybe you don't care for there's still something to learn from that that's right mozart (laughs) they they do say that if you listen to mozart before an exam you get a better better results there's something about his that that just it does something to the brain it kind of uh, maybe you know connects your synapses in your, in your brain patterns, gets you interconnecting things or something. You, uh, they really do say that it's true. Apparently, <laughs> it's been analysed anyway. But um, I, I don't, and I'm not a fan of Mozart. Actually, I don't like his stuff very much at all. Yeah, they have that Mozart for babies. Uh, thing. Mozart for babies. Oh yeah, 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 yeah things like that. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a big Mozart fan. But there, there are a couple of really great pieces, but I'm not, I'm not much of. A, I'm, I'm a Beethoven man. Beethoven's yeah. awesome. Beethoven's the new world for me. <laughs> for me, Mozart represents the old world. It's a genius he may be. He represents the old old world, the old order, and Beethoven represents the new order. It's like a huge split actually yeah. between the two of them, in my opinion. Anyway. Well, and so that, that well, Just, no, it's... You didn't expect to be talking about Mozart and Beethoven on this. That's why people no, tune in. Well, that's okay. Like, nor, nor did I. But then I never think about what I'm going to talk about. You can tell that kind of... Well, I, I just think about records... You know, since we were talking about the birthday party, like Junkyard, that are just like there's nothing that sounds like that record. Like you know, you have that. I mean, it's, it's it seems like you like had like the mids boost. Like it's really unearthly sounding. Uh, like just almost like yeah. daring someone it's, to listen, almost right. It's so brutal. It's like yeah, the, like the bass sound is almost completely scooped out of mids. It's got like it's all there's a lot of bottom end and a lot of uh, high attack in the sound, and 
the, the there's a real harsh edge to the guitars and and even aspects of the drums, but they're um they are it's a kind of really a good harsh edge. It's really it's kind of really snarling as opposed to just unpleasant. Yeah. I, th- I think, anyway, I'm sure a lot of no, people no, would I find don't... it unpleasant. <laughs> I hope they do. There's, we didn't want people to like us very much. But, the, um, you know, I've, I've, I'm obviously constantly overseeing the um, the remasterings and, and when they go back into uh, te- you know, the test pressings. This is for the bad seeds as well. I, I get sent all the test pressings. Mm. I have to listen to all those bloody albums again and it's <laughs> a being them and checking what they've done and the the albums that they've had the most trouble with these remastering people because you don't sit with the master they just cut the vinyl without you there anymore it's like the the whole system's changed once upon a time we would have been in the cutting room right. making sure it was sounding supposedly like we wanted it to now you it's it's just completely remote you have no access to what's going on and the album that created the biggest trouble was junkyard really oh, absolutely yeah because very very specific as you noted and the tps would come back the test pressings would come back sorry i won't use acronyms people aren't familiar with and um they and i would be playing them and it'd be like they've warmed the bass up they've warmed the bass up a bit they've turned the harshness of the guitars back yeah. <laughs> and put a stereo spreader on it to make it sound wider, but it changes the really fine balance between the guitars and the, and it, so it was, it was even subtly changing the mix. And I, I would just send them back and uh, they, were, they were doing it in Germany. Uh, bless their souls, you know, they're, they're very, they're very technical and they think they, they're very good at everything, the Germans, and mostly they are, <laughs> but they're not perfect. Right. And I wrote back and I said, you've changed this, this and this, and they said and their response was, in a very honest, but <laughs> they, their response was something like, we have hardly changed anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I know, but you have changed things. How Teutonic of them! Wow, and you should not have changed anything because it's a historic. It's a historic document now. It's a historical document. It's not. It's not like something that you should change to sound like the current taste. Yeah, you know, it's it, it is what it is. It was made in the time, and it's really meant to sound like we intended it to sound. And they made it uh, more approachable, more palatable, almost. Yeah. Well, it's slightly more approachable. What's the point of that? The whole <laughs> thing's unapproachable anyway. The music's like weird and uh, uh, not meant to be nice and palatable. And so then you make the soundscape, uh, I hate that term, but it's the only way to describe it, slightly nicer. What's the point of that? <laughs> it's a completely pointless exercise. Anyway, um, so we, we, we do that. And they... they they were un, unmovable in their German way. They, you know, they just felt they had done the right thing. <laughs> so we had to get done somewhere else. Anyway, that's that's. that's but it's, it's quite rare. Mostly the the stuff comes back sounding really good. Well, and, uh, 
people just do it. They know they respect that it's uh, what it is, and they just cut it straight from the, the master they're given. They don't they don't muck around with it at all. So, but uh, you know. Well, Fortunately, my life would be a nightmare. I'd be spending half my life dealing with that crap. But um, so, but the junkyard was really, really hard work. Well, well you, <laughs> it, it probably falls to you because you're the guy, as you've pointed out, that listens to all the stuff, right? Well, I mean, half and, you know, half and, <laughs> there's only Nick. There's only well, you know, Tracy and Roland are both gone. So, um, um, I don't know that Roland. Would I have checked with him the remastering stuff? I don't think I, Roland ever wanted to check the remastering of stuff, which is odd because he would have been very concerned about it. If he'd heard them, he would have been uh, had a lot to say about how they sounded. Yeah. yeah. And you know, he would have felt exactly the same way I did about it. I mean, there was no there was no divergence of opinion about what we were doing as the birthday party. We were all very much on the same page. So. Um, we didn't need to discuss anything. We knew what it was meant to be. So, um, but uh, for saying, I don't wonder why that was. Maybe um, oh, I can't remember now. Maybe those uh, recent repressings were actually after he died. Is that possible? When did um, I'd have to look? I guess it's about. Dime. It's been about ten years now. Uh, almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's. Yeah, he's I'm not up. sure when they were done, and we uh, we redid them with. Um, uh, you know, it's drastic plastic. Is it the people in America who who, who did them? Yeah, I have some of them upstairs, uh, but I don't have them here, so I can't look, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm just can't remember what year it was. But um, you know, there, there's the other possibility that if it happened like you know, sometime between 2006 and 2009 when when Roland died, that uh, he would have been too unwell to be bothered to listen, you know, right. or not had a turntable and all that stuff. So yeah, it does it does fall to me, yeah. And all the bad scenes catalogue, apart from after I left, falls to me to check the remasterings and the test pressings and the new reissues. And I, I do all of that. It's my, you know, it's my legacy as well as Nick's. And I think Nick wants me to do that stuff. It's a heavy load, but I mean, just uh, last thing on on Junkyard, like just I, I think you know Tracy's bass playing was so iconic and, and influential. But on that record especially, it's been emulated so many times so the idea of rounding off the corners is like are you kidding me like why would you, <laughs> you pick- well yeah no, the, the base the corners of the base weren't rounded off but it, it was made a little bit nicer in, yeah. and it's such a specific bass sound it's the meanest bass player why sound. would you do that <laughs> Sorry? I said Tracy was the meanest what? bass player. Why would you ever do make make it nicer sounding? Yeah, um, yeah, or just 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 a bit more warmth and you know, so so people could enjoy it a bit more. But <laughs> 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 that, that really wasn't our purpose at all. Anyway, well, and it's and, and it also occurs to me that uh, you know, and I've heard you know, I, I Phil Calvert was good enough to be on the show, and I, I talked to him especially about the birthday party's early days. And it, it seems like the dynamic between everybody uh, that almost, you know, everyone is working towards a common goal, but almost at war with each other, at least half the time as well, seemed to be so key to that band. Uh, yeah, there were things like that happening, yeah. Um, I wasn't usually uh, one of the major main belligerents, but it, it did uh, later on when things got a bit edgy with Roland, between Roland and Nick, at, uh, uh, after Phil left, it was uh, I kind of got caught in the middle of that, yeah. the attitude thing of that, and it was yeah, it was it was pretty difficult. 
Do you think that was Roland being frustrated because he wasn't getting his songs heard or that he wasn't getting to be the front person as much or? Yeah, yeah, things like that, but it's hard to be, I mean, it's not like anything had changed that much. Um, It was, you know, the birthday party was a difficult construct for for Roland because he he wasn't getting out of it everything that he wanted to be getting out of you know he 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 came into the band wanting to be able to sing some songs occasionally and some of his own and contribute his own songs and there were difficulties with his songwriting eventually in the birthday party it wasn't kind of aligning and um he was kind of writing things for the band Mm. as opposed to just writing stuff and saying here's what I've got and I didn't know that till years later. And at the time, I could kind of sense that there was something a bit uh, premeditated about some of his songs that were coming in. And, and Nick was having, uh, you know, he had to sing his lyrics a lot of the time and wasn't always relating to them. So there, there were just there were things like that. And it, it wasn't like huge issues, but it was things that just kept, you know, gnawing away at the fibre of of the being, you know, undermining the, the kind of, uh, um, the integrity of the, and the, the kind of, um, the interconnection between the people, you know, it was just, it was just being eroded gradually by li- just little things, you know, it can really happen in the band because you're very, very close. We were totally just in each other's pockets constantly. So any, <laughs> any little things like that could just create, um, just, yeah, just, just that, un- that gradual undermining of, of what, what is taking place, you know, of the interconnections. And, you know, I think there were also then a few arguments about songwriting co- co-credits, you know, co-songwriting things and who'd written what, like between Nick and Roland, the most mm. boring argument in the world. And <laughs> um, and that, and then when there was a, a, you know, a kind of impasse about that kind of issue, it was just like that was the end of that. Then you know, Nick Nick did turn to me at one stage. He was asking me to write songs with him, which to me is like, ugh, I hate doing that. You know, I hate I hate sitting down and, and writing this. I don't like that. I, I, it's kind of for me. It's a private. You know, it's just a private thing. You just kind of do it by yourself. <laughs> anyway, he asked me to sit down with a guitar and work on a couple of things with him. And I just sort of said, why don't you just do it with Roland? <laughs> so I didn't really want to do it. And um, and he said, I don't want to write with Roland anymore. Oof. Yeah. So, you know, when that when when you're at that point in a band, it's like... That's the check, uh, please, oh, moment. Oh, I think there's a problem here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's... Uh, uh, yeah. So then I did, I did write the songs with him. So it was like Deep in the Woods and... Um, yeah, I was going to say that was Mutiny, uh, the bad CDP. That, 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 those... Those yeah, it's a lot of my, it's suddenly a lot of my co-writes, and it's yeah. because Nick wouldn't write with Roland. Well, and, so, I, and um, I do quite like those EPs. I think they got a very uh, oh, they're great yeah, they're downer really good, vibe, but, you know, very bleak, um, very deep yeah. in the woods. Even sounds like an iconic Roland guitar line. The, he's just playing my entire guitar line. I wrote the whole thing, so he just plays my part that I wrote um, with his sound, which is great. You know, yeah, but. Uh, Suits it perfectly. Wouldn't yeah. have sounded as good me playing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then then you had uh, you had Blixa uh, come come in at that point a little bit as well, right? Who's got you know a, a iconic player? Uh, that was right, right there, right at the end. Right that was the really end. right at the end. 
we had Blixer come in, and that was really kind of that was difficult. That was politically difficult. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, because it was when we'd reconvened after the band had broken up, really, we reconvened in London to finish the mutiny recordings, and uh, Roland played a guitar on Mutiny in Heaven, and Nick didn't like it. Mm. And asked Blixer was around doing something with Neubarton, I think, in London. And Nick asked Blixer in, and the next day Roland came into the studio, and Blixer was overdubbing his guitar part on Mutiny in Heaven, and I and it was like, I think Roland took that pretty badly. Yeah, that's that's rough. Un- understandably, yeah, I, <laughs> totally, you know, I, I sympathise one hundred percent, but uh, you know, it's just that's where things have gotten to. So, and the band, the band wasn't. Uh, uh, abandoned, you know, we'd broken up, so the band had broken up, so Nick didn't really care about offending Roland, I guess. I felt pretty uncomfortable about it, <laughs> but you know, it's, um, it was just what was happening. You can't really, you know, can't go back and change that. So, well, I, yeah, and it, but, you know, whatever, I could go, there was a lot more detail around that, too. You know, I'm trying to keep it pretty streamlined, but. You can understand there's, then there's, there were a bit, there was a sort of split there between Nick and Roland, really, and, and it became a bit unfixable. And I was the one who just stepped out and said, well, that's, that's it. I'm not, I'm, I can't keep going with this situation. I, I don't know if Roland was really even that aware of some of the things that Nick was thinking because he wasn't talking to him. So, you know, there's just, for me, that's, I'm not interested in being stuck in the middle of that sort of thing. I, I, just, I just said, no, it's over. let's just move on, do something else. I mean, at a certain points, like being a marriage counselor or something, right? I mean, it's like. Oh, I, I think in marriage counseling, they talk about stuff. <laughs> Uh, people weren't really talking about stuff. I mean, the extent of the discussion was what I have already told you. Yeah. Not riding with Roland anymore was about the, that was the sum total of any discussion about the issue. So, you know, uh, <laughs> we were, it was a band, you know, it's like a bunch of young men with them um, uh, who didn't really know how to uh, be diplomatic or, but, you know, just just on some weird young man's mission. It does occur to me, uh, and last thing on this, that uh, the bad CDP with Sonny's Burning has, uh, I think, one of my favorite opening lines of, of any song <laughs> ever. Uh, okay, yeah, look, I, I, you know, I must admit, for me at the time when Nick said that, I was like, ah, oh, it just seemed a little, Really? <laughs> it's a bit stupid, really. <laughs> it was a bit dumb, but um, uh, people seem people seem to like it. I mean, it is pretty out there. It's like you can't say that at the start of a song. I appreciate that. That's kind of really good. But uh, was it a was it a good, really good thing that you're not allowed to say at the start of a song? I'm right. not so convinced about that. <laughs> well, I will say this: when I first heard it at 17, I was like, "Oh, okay, all, all right. Let's let's hear what this band's got to say then. All right." Like it definitely <laughs> caught my attention for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I, I can, I can, I get that. Yeah, I was on board yeah. immediately, but as a seventeen-year-old boy, of course, would be. You know, it's <laughs> like that's. You were on on what? Sorry, as on... being being seventeen years old, it was right down the line for me. I'm like, oh, fantastic! This is this is. For yeah, me. yeah, sure. No. Yeah. That's that's what I mean. It was, it was like a little bit of a populist uh, populist uh, you know attempt there. You know, like. Oh, you know, yeah, the audience will all go. We were, we weren't into the audience response. We wanted the audience to be um, 
reactive to what we were actually doing yeah as opposed to coming with preconceptions and then you chuck something like that out and you you're asking them to join in so i didn't really understand it in that way I, it's, it was very unusual for nick to do that yeah uh, it's almost it, like playing it, with it, the, it seemed uh, like out of, it seemed like out of line with our our usual uh, what we were putting forth so i mean i, I didn't mind I, I mean honestly it sounds like i thought about it a lot I didn't. <laughs> we, were just, we were just doing what was happening all the time. So um, I had my immediate thought about it and then that passed and then I didn't think about it again. Yeah. So and just got on with what we were doing, which is what we would always do. So. Well, and it's, you know, it occurs to me that there's other moments of sort of upending the, the apple cart with that band. You know, Release the Bats is something that, like, in the hands of a different band would have hit very differently. But, you know, it, it, in the days before anyone even were talking about what goth was or anything along those lines, it was like, it was, it struck me as like the dark humor of it was like, oh, that's hilarious. That's fantastic. But it's also, um, but it's also didn't seem like it was. Were, meant I think to it's be... probably a little bit of a stab at the early gothic yeah. things that were coming out. It's a piss so take, sort almost. of sending them up. But the 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 no the that aspect of it is kind of lost in history totally, and it just seems like one of those things. But uh, it, for us, it was probably a bit like, yeah, I, I, it's it's to be, we we didn't really feel very aligned with all that uh, that club. What was it called? Um, with the death rock the, the, what were they calling it uh the, the bat cave and all that the, stuff oh, in yeah, London. Yeah. all the, and all those bands we we felt really uh like in a different world than them I, I think we felt in a different world than just about everybody anyway and that we weren't really connected with anything what we were doing was just had come to to exist independently of anything and we were trying to destroy rock and roll and um from within and of course, we failed. <laughs> well, and you inadvertently made some great rock and roll in the process. Well, we um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think that was the that was probably the the secret purpose. But 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 we we would happily have destroyed rock and roll if we could. But we just weren't good enough. We just couldn't quite do it. I mean, it just wasn't possible. Right. We were just a bunch of young guys from Australia with. Um, who who didn't really know what we were. You know, we were just doing what. We're just completely going by feel, so. Well, and then as I've seen a lot of people like Dave, David Yao from Jesus Liz, different people like this have talked to me about, but many people have talked to me about the birthday party over the years, and and uh, you know the question. I remember David and one of the other members of the band. I can't remember which one now. So it's just saying, did you realise what you were doing? Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, yeah, we yes, we did realize what we were doing and what was happening. We knew what was going, what was happening. But the, in the course of the discussion, I just said to him, "Yeah, but we never discussed anything. <laughs> we had there was no, no academic plan meeting or mission <laughs> statement. We just had no conversations about what we were doing at all. We just kept doing it." Having and we understood what was happening, but we didn't need to discuss it. Yeah, it was like a, it was organic or something. We just understood it. So, and I think he was a bit stunned about that. That we didn't actually analyze amongst ourselves or discuss what it was we were doing. Yeah, the thirteen-point plan or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
it's it seems like it would have been academically constructed on some level, but it, it it's almost more compelling that that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, but we uh, yeah it, it constructed itself, and we understood what it what it had become and what it would continue being. Anyway, that's a lot. That's probably a lot about the birthday party. How long yeah. is this going for? <laughs> that's fine. We could we 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 could move on a little bit. I I, I would very much I feel disingenuous not to uh, speak about more recent things, but I also would like to touch a little bit about uh, the bad seeds as well. So that's a that's a weighty discography. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a fantastic amount of time that has covered so many different types of records and so many different moods, so many different uh, times in humanity. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. You know, that's and obviously, when you're in a thing like that, you know, what what really shifted between the birthday party and moving into the bad seas was that that Nick really took the reins, became the the, the guiding figure. And the the focus of the band then was to realise what he was doing, and what you know it was what he so, so the each album was a, or each next phase was about what Nick was doing. So it, once you move into that, you're really uh, connected with and um, you're in the service of that songwriter, and that's kind of what happens with PJ Harvey or when I'm working with her or whatever. So you're also at the mercy of whether they've come up with something good or not. But <laughs> you have sure. to buy into, well, when I say good or not, I'm being black and white there, <laughs> whether it's brilliant or not quite so brilliant, perhaps I could say that. And you, you're you there for the ride whether you have control over that or not because yeah. you've committed to the project and so forth. So it's a, it's a really interesting process in that way and uh, observing how that plays out because when you're in the middle of those projects or those tours or whatever you're doing, you're completely committed to them. You know, you, you go, you go all the way with them. You can't not go. Into them. And a lot, I think a lot of people outside of, uh, of music and outside of bands just sort of think, Oh, the third album wasn't so great. Um, you know, they must've realized what they were doing wasn't that good. And, but you just there's no way you're too you're you're, you're, there's yeah. no objectivity there at that time and even if you suspect in the early phases like oh perhaps this isn't even the sort of thing that I like by the time you you you're on the journey and you simply have to go through the whole thing and you have to buy it. you have to commit to it and really invest yourself in these things so um, you know fortunately. Uh, the vast majority of Bad Seeds albums are really fantastic, or I think they are. And yeah. so, you know, when I've had to listen back to the, I say had to, when I've been forced <laughs> to listen to the catalogue again, um, uh, I, I, well, I am, in some ways, I am forced to listen to it again, as I've described before, like checking test pressings and remasterings and stuff like that, even remixing. I had to do the entire catalogue into 5.1, which, you know, never became popularised, that format. They sound absolutely incredible. In I'm sure, yeah, that's fantastic. And so we mixed them specifically and I, I did all that. You know, they sound brilliant. Um, anyway, uh, the, the good thing about having to go through all that catalogue is just so much of it was fantastic and that yeah. it was... You know, it was really actually enjoyable to do the whole process for the most part. Um, 
and it was it, every time I come back to the catalogue, it's interesting to hear which some things are different when I hear them again. Yeah, that's really interesting. That the my memory of them, I always felt that my memory of the albums was pretty accurate and in line with uh, you know whether I felt they were you know brilliant or not quite so whatever you know my personal feelings and taste about them and so forth. But the passage of time, I think, I think it has changed a bit. I hear some of them a bit differently now and it's, it's really, so it's interesting to go back and listen to them again because it's something I don't normally do. You know, if people ask me, Oh, do you listen to you? So I never put my own records on. It's yeah. like a death horror. I don't you know. So I, we even had a, uh, recently there was a bizarre online thing that they did at the uh it must be at the sort of nick cave and the bad seeds website or maybe some some connected thing with with nick where they streamed the murder ballads album and there was a chat room oh my goodness okay running parallel, running parallel with the album and it was absolute madness <laughs> and i think myself nick and blixer were there and warren was there uh hiding in the corner uh, like you know, just watching. Just checking it out, yeah. <laughs> and not saying anything until someone called him out and he kind of popped out and went, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> how, could, how could I miss this or something he said, something like that. Anyway, it was pretty funny. I think uh, poor old Blixer was just like this barrage of, you know, high-speed English. I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with most of it. I think. And he, he must have been, you know, it was difficult for him to keep up with that speed. Yeah. Of, of, but it was... Um, uh, it was really interesting because at the end of it all, uh, I could see that Nick was really surprised at how great the album was. Yeah, it's a good record. That's <laughs> he, was like, he was like, fuck, this album's really great, you know, and, and clearly he hadn't listened to it since we'd put it out, yeah. which is exactly what I, I don't listen to them either. You don't listen to your work that way. It's um, You have to just move on, I think, and you can it's better it's better to leave it where it is yes uh, maybe if you maybe the the fear is if you go back and start listening to it or the experience is if you go back and start listening to it thinking, oh it could have been a bit no, i don't like that like that you start kind of it's hard to you know if, yeah. if my music comes on somewhere at someone's house mm. especially awkward it's horrible <laughs> it's just like turn it off it's the last thing i want to hear anything at all and even at a club or something, uh, if you're out and your music comes on, it's just really distracting in the most annoying way because you can't concentrate anymore. On it's just. And then everyone looks at you. Ah, oh, look! It's it's uh, it's you. It's me. <laughs> Shut up. You're doing the thing. Go away. Okay. All right. Yeah, I know. I did. I know. I'm aware. Thank you. There's two of me here. <laughs> Go away. You have a thing. It's just you know. Yeah, anyway. Briefly, so that's, um, briefly back to Murder it Ballads. It was great that Nick loved the album so much too because the Murder Ballads album is probably one that he didn't feel as, sorry, you were going on to some other subject, that he probably didn't feel as personal a connection with in some ways right. because the lyrics are about, you know, third third party sort of Allegory. things, I suppose you could say, yeah. as opposed to his personal things. And it was great that he, he could hear how... <laughs> how bizarre and out there the album was. He, I think he really loved hearing it, genuinely. 
Well, I mean, I, I worked at a record store when it came out, and it was uh, very compelling to me because it was an album that has a song like Where the Wild Roses Grow as well as Stagger Lee, uh, yeah. which is very contentious at the record store, I might add, uh, not the least of which has to do with oh, swearing. Oh, definitely, but I mean, Stagger Lee is meant to be <laughs> Yes, <contentious>. exactly. <laughs> Clearly was really taking a lot of risks, um, <laughs> a lot of things. So... Um, but then understanding that that's part of its purpose is right. to be asking questions and throwing up difficult, uh, unpalatable, <laughs> unpalatable information. It's, uh, I, I think that uh, it's kind of important too, because that's part of what's not just saying, it's not operating on one level where it's, uh, it's endorsing actions or ideas. It's throwing them up and, Putting, putting the questions there too. In the grand yeah. tradition not of like, actual not murder like ballads. like someone from the NRA, sorry? As in the grand sorry? tradition of actual murder ballads, you know, which was. Well, probably, right? but it's also, you know, not some, so coming from some right wing or left wing nut job who wants to go out and shoot people. It's not, it's actually a different, there's a different purpose behind it. So, so to kind of apply some of that sort of idea to it would just be a you know, complete misunderstanding, but I, I can see why it, it's contentious and why, but that's what it's for. It's to make people ask questions. Yeah. Actually, it's mostly just to have, so people can have a bit of fun. It's also wild. It's just meant to be entertaining. Right. <laughs> and, and it is. And, and it's operating. It's, uh, I'm quite wrong. It's not operating on any, it's not trying operating on much of a deeper level at all. I think something like Stagger Lee is really designed as an extreme entertainment. Well, sure. You know, like, it, and it's not, you know, it's not a statement. It's not a, in some ways, it's not a serious statement on any level. Yeah. Uh, it's allegory. And it, it, it's, it's in yeah, the yeah, tradition of so, like walking you know, dead or something. Right. <laughs> but I can understand why questions around some people, you know, and people are understandably, they take, they take exceptions. You know, a lot of people have talked about Nick's misogyny, that they interpret in his lyrics and has been a big issue over the years. And I've seen huge articles written by women who are outraged at his entire oeuvre because he's, they think he's a, it's, it's just an appalling affront to women everywhere. And, you know, it's, it's, I think what that indicates more than anything is that Nick is presenting complex and difficult ideas and uh that's i think probably a good thing you know he, he it may be that he is he has uh elements of misogyny <laughs> he's not not so much misogyny just um not necessarily seeing as women as equals i would yeah. say a lot of the time and that, that's a kind of complex issue too because obviously there are exceptions to that and his enormous love and respect for Anita Lane to begin with and Nina Simone and people like this, who then clearly he's, you know, he's not, he does respect women enormously and their abilities, their potential. So uh, there are, yeah, there are complex issues there. And I, that, I think that's what that indicates with, with people taking, having problems with some of those things that there, there are complex issues that Nick wants to throw up. He likes the uncomfortable. 
Well, sure, and there's cultural cachet to it that that matters to the to larger thing. I mean, think uh, you know, back to Let Love In and uh, you know, uh, Red Right Hand. Snoop Dogg covered that. <laughs> that's crazy. Like, and it's yeah, that's that's a that's a weird one. Red Right Hand, and it's kind of a it's. Yeah, Snoop Dogg, I think Nick and Snoop Dogg have got some kind of, uh, they kind of know each other a bit through a couple of, uh, you know, mutual uh, connections and uh, I'm not quite sure how Snoop Dogg got onto Red Right Hand, but it's a a song that was, um, I remember when we did Lollapalooza way back then uh, for our sins, uh, it was a song that everybody in all the bands loved that song. Yeah. So it didn't matter, maybe they didn't like much of what the Bad Seeds were doing or maybe they liked all of it or whatever, but that song that was the one. resonated with almost everybody for some reason. So it's got a, uh, I mean, it's essentially my music. It just came out of a jam. So um, as, a, as a co-write, understandably, because it came out of a jam, but it's essentially my groove. And it's just, it's just a 12-bar structure, yeah. like a 12-bar blues structure. It's got a kind of thing. It's like a what is that style? I suppose it's almost um, dark soul or something. It's like kind of a weird yeah. it, it, people. It just it's, it's very familiar. It's got a kind of um, it's got a universal feel to it that just kind of can operate for almost everybody. Well, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because it came out of just completely the the weirdest thing. Anyway, I can't explain how the music even came to exist. But then, so, then did like he, he he's um, then he, he almost hits it like you know Wilson Pickett channeling Raymond Chandler or something. You know, like it, it, it's there's there's something about yeah, how it hops. It's got something together. for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah, there's some there's a lot of people can find something in it. So uh, and it's quite atypical of Bad Seed songs. Actually, it's not there's not a lot of other songs in our our catalogue that, that are like that that sound like that or have that function. So, um, and that's probably because it did come out of a jam. Musically, so it created this atmosphere that then. Um, I mean, I remember when we went into the studio. I think Nick and myself and Tommy had done it as a just jamming out some ideas, and uh, I mean, it is actually a little bit interesting because um, oh, I think it's a little bit interesting because it, it began and Nick just said. Um, you know, most musicians go, they have their, they, they, there's kind of chords and patterns and things that they automatically go to that are familiar to them that they, they use as their sort of source, their groundswell or their, their um, the pond they can dip into for ideas. Or so, they, you know, he was sick of going to C minor or going to, to you know, whatever the chords are he was going to all the time. And he said, he just said, um, well, as Tommy was sitting there on the drums, and he said, play something in a key I don't know. <laughs> And so I just thought, B, B minor. He won't know B minor. He just won't know it. And so I just started playing the bass line, just came straight out. That's fantastic. So I can't, you know, without any thought at all. Right. And that's kind of being freed up in your mind. You just went on and just started playing this thing. And um, you know, we just did this long jam and... Uh, there's on a B side actually called where the action is. And, um, 
Nick did these fantastic uh, improvised lyrics too. He's, he's kind of a bit of a genius at improvising lyrics. It sounds like a whole constructed song <laughs> for 10 minutes and yeah. he's just made it all up off the top of his head. It's kind of hilarious anyway. But um, when we went in to do Let Love In, you know, we had all these demos that we'd done from different places and, and that song was there and uh, myself and Tommy and Blixer just said, well, we should do something with that because it's the music's really good. And Nick was like, "What? <laughs> do something with what?" <laughs> he had no, he had no, no recollection. <laughs> I mean, his focus is very much on the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. I mean, it was then. Maybe, maybe he's a bit more. Uh, I, I don't know now, but he seems to be a bit more focused into the music as well these days than he certainly than he was then. He was much more focused on the lyrics. I mean, he was writing a lot of music, obviously, so he's you know his connection with that's pretty great. But he's, the the lyrics were probably more important to him then than the music, and he just wasn't hearing the undertow, the kind of music, the atmosphere of the music that was there. And it was just like this. Uh, it was a kind of improvised lyrical right. comedy moment. So we went in and recorded the recorded the basic track of what became Red Right Hand with no singing on it. So he came back oh, wow. with those lyrics um, after, I suppose, after he heard what we did and recorded in a proper studio, yeah. sounding really great with the drums, really, you know, whatever. He sort of he realised it was something that sounded pretty great and kind of gave him the ideas to expand on this idea for the lyrics. So some sort of lyrics he must have had lying around. So that's unusual. Things don't normally operate like that, but you know, it, it sort of shows how how important the band can be. Right. Well, exactly. And, I mean, that's the fact like... that the bad seeds do operate like a real band yeah. around, and people don't always know or understand that. And I mean, it's not. It's also an abnormal band because it is. He is the, totally the leader, and it's all ultimately he decides everything. Yeah. Um, on uh, in a certain way, I mean, the, the you know the, in, the bottom line is with him. So, but the band is contributing constantly artistically to the process, and and Nick loves having that around. He needs that around, and and obviously he chooses pretty interesting people for the most right. part. Apart from just getting me to stay with him after the other band broke up, <laughs> he's chosen really interesting people, and it's. It's sometimes the band that can provide, you know, the atmosphere that uh, creates. Absolutely, the story. yeah. Well, so. in, in Nick's case, particularly the groove to what's happening. Yeah. Uh, the, like, if there's because Nick does tend to historically he has um, just sat at the piano and plotted out the chords, and there's kind of no um, rhythm, or there's no there's rarely. I mean, that's a bit unfair. There's rarely. <laughs> there's rarely. There's very often not a, a kind of feel or a, a, a like a, a rhythm pattern or a, so the baseline. So it's a Mark, Martin Casey's been incredibly yeah. important in that in giving uh, a kind of yeah rhythmic feel to what what's happening and what you know, the potential there and just giving it some it's just an, an added dimension you know and that used to fall to before Marty was there, you know, that fell to other people. Yeah. Me, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was quite often the drummer and the bass player, so it quite, that, that job quite often fell to me earlier. But once Marty was there, um, 
it was it became a kind of uh, reliable system to to have that sure. work get that working where the the feel of the material would would become something really nice and and um, strong. There's a breathability to it. That's kind of foundation. Sorry, I said there's a breathability to it. There's kind of like um, like a, a, a different level of assurance that uh, allows for other people to shine in different ways. That yeah, absolutely. I mean, what Marty provides is another. Uh, there is a lot of space, and pe- you, a lot of people don't know even notice. Yeah. Oh, I know what's happening. It's almost invisible, but it's it's having a huge impact on. Uh, everything that's going on there and you know, I think people are a lot of the public well you know it's understandable. a lot of the public don't they're just interested in a lot of the public are just interested in the in the most visible aspect right. of things and, and they, you know, they haven't got time to care about who's playing who's but, playing what that's not important to them and that, that's right too why should they be it's not that's the the end that's the thing that's really important but for us it's important how it gets there for the people really involved with it you need to under, no it's important to understand what's um having that impact so it's important for us and well you shouldn't obviously. be telling them what's important you should be showing them you know the- <laughs> well yeah, but i mean uh, you can't force feed people stuff they have to be interested in it so i understand why that process happens and why people are interested in kim kardashian and um and why they you know only focus on the singer and why yeah. in this current era nobody even knows that elton john doesn't write his own lyrics it's right. just <laughs> people aren't interested in it's not end of interest they're interested in the 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 um most visible, you know, thing. They, they, it's condensing it down, simplifying it so it's digestible. I get that. It's okay. That's all right. I don't care. I'm, I don't want to be the centre of attention anyway. I'm not interested in being – I've never been interested in being the centre of attention. And um, that's probably, you know, why I, uh, my solo stuff is, is also impacted by that because I'll do the minimum exposure for it that I can bear to do. Yeah. Um because it's just not what I'm doing. I'm just not interested in that, and I'm not in. I just want the to to make the music and uh, make it the way I want it to be. And a lot of the time, I want it to be quite difficult, and just put it out there. And so I'm I'm not as bad as Anita in that regard. <laughs> I will do interviews. I do do some shows, but I I, I do feel occasionally quite uncomfortable about uh, the promotional. The exposure, the public aspect of of um, selling myself, yeah, I don't awesome. really like it that much. Yeah. And uh, I think, apart from getting bored with the huge quantity of interviews that he has to do, Nick loves actually kind of likes selling himself. He right. likes that part. He's had quite comfortable with that part of it, which is really important too. Then it's it, look at the impact it has. It plays into the whole success level of things very much if you've got someone he's a great front man he's a showman he also sells the thing enormously at the shows you know when you someone who's jumping around doing that waving his arms it it really and it is great i I love it too i I enjoy seeing people perform like that it can be really good if they're good at it and or, or the intensity and the the focus of what they're doing is in the right place it's just not i'm just not good at that right well it's not I mean, in an ideal situation, 
you know, someone doesn't have to do all of those things, you know. No, 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 of course not. Of course not. I'm just but I'm just saying this is it's coming I'm coming from the point where of the public and what they're Getting, acknowledging, yeah, and, what the public yeah. uh, sees, and what what they've got, what they've got time to respond to. Because usually, yeah. you know, everybody's got their own things. We've all got our cat or our dog, and we've got you know how, how many hours are there in the day? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who wants to know who played bass on that song? You know, it's just most people. It's not in, for most people. It's not interesting. I understand that they just want the the thing itself. Which is the most important part of it, anyway? Is the it end is. products the it's the end? It's the art in the end. The that's the music that you're just hearing. That's that's what you're doing it for, anyway. What the musicians are doing it for is to create that thing, and that's so. That's what should be the important focus. You know. May I ask you about Henry's dream about about that record? <laughs> <laughs> I understand it's a bit contentious in certain circles, so. Um. Uh, okay. Um, I quite like it. I think it's. I think it's a very. In what way? Well, I mean, it was a difficult album to make. In that, uh, it was the first time we handed over the production ostensibly to someone else. We were kind of talked into the notion of um, not producing it ourselves, which was, in a couple of ways, was a good idea. Um, in theory, and we did learn things from it, which were very helpful and helped us make our subsequent albums a lot better um, to push ourselves a bit more with the basic tracks and not get lazy and stuff like that and really kind of get really good performances, you know, that went... That was the main thing we learned from it, really, And because Briggs, David Briggs, who we brought in, who'd worked a lot with with Neil Young, um, he, he did make us do that and it was really worthwhile. So we, we learned that lesson. And I think that was part of what Daniel Miller, our mute boss, really wanted us to do. He could sort of hear it in our recordings, I think, and he wanted us to learn that lesson and be better. Sure. So, and that kind of happened. But uh, along the way, you know, David Briggs was kind of chosen really because Nick felt, I mean, I was having the meetings with the producers, with Nick and the potential producers, the applicants or whatever they were. They weren't really applicants. but um, And he felt, he pretty much chose David Briggs because he felt he would in, interfere the least with our sound and <laughs> would have the least artistic ideas. In other words, the, the, just the least kind of uh, potential adverse impact on, on us doing our own thing. And on some levels that, did happen and on other levels it didn't. I mean, we we found these uh, a great studio in upstate New York and uh, got there and started setting up and he, he just didn't turn up because he had an overrun with his previous project mm. and he didn't really want to go to upstate New York. He just wanted to hang around in, in California and record there because it's where he was. So eventually um, we just had to pack up the recordings we'd started in in uh in near near woodstock actually in, in a studio called dreamland and we had to kind of relocate to la and ended up at rock city in van nuys and uh it was a rock it's a rock studio it's a good rock studio but it's in the, the name <laughs> needed a different sort of studio to that but anyway that's where we recorded henry's dream which is why it partly has a different atmospheric sound than our yeah. other records yeah in a in a not a good way, 
it doesn't have that space around the sound apart from the couple of tracks that we recorded at Dreamland that we which are Loom of the Land and Christina the Astonishing I think yeah and um which do have that kind of sound. I was going to say, those definitely do. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a mistake because it's, for me, I've always said historically that, the, the, well, it used to be, it's not really like this now, but back back when it really was a, ne- a necessity to kind of, kind of go into a decent recording studio, professional recording studio, I always used to say that the studio, the choice of studio was the single biggest yeah. production decision you would make. And... Uh, Unfortunately, Briggs put us in Rock City, and it wasn't the right studio. But the the other thing about that is, and and this uh, is that what's contentious for people about that album, the sound or the I, feel. I think it's the, yeah, the sound. It, of, I, I personally yeah. love it. I think it's a fantastic record. But I, my inter- my understanding of it is is that yeah, some people you know were were used to the more spaciousness of of the earlier records and maybe yeah. So and then the problem was okay. So Briggs, uh, David Briggs, then we went up to this place up uh, called Indigo Ranch, I think it was called, up the up the hills behind Malibu or something. Yeah. And um, he mixed it at unbelievably excruciating volume, <laughs> where you could hardly be in the room, and that, that's saying something because we play really loud. Yeah. You know, the bad kids play really loud, and. Um, uh, and so we got we got the mixes back, and of course there was no room for subtlety then, and you can't actually hear things that are wrong with the balance when it's simply too loud. It, just, it puts the yeah, uh, vocals. Yeah. You, you need to be really careful with that because the vocals you just mix them at the wrong level for one thing. There are issues with a couple of um, intonation things in some of the instruments and the bass on a couple of tracks that we never identified because it was just always at such excruciating volume that we couldn't hear it. You can't hear that stuff when it's that loud. And we and then we got the mixes back on cassettes and stuff, as you did in those days, which was always pretty appalling anyway, and having to listen to a cassette of your new album's mixes. And, um, and they just sounded like demos. Yeah. So we had to remix it with Tony Cohen. We realised we just had to remix the album. And then... Tony remixed it, and that was an arduous process. But um, Tony, who br- was brilliant, he actually mixed it badly with us, with our accent. But the, the 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 thing is, again, that's a little bit like going into the project. When you go into when in those days, when you went into the mixing process, you would go in a direction with you have to mix pretty much manually, and it'd take a long time with certain tracks. If it was a complicated thing, it'd take hours and hours and hours. So. Um, once you go into, you had to set up the sounds and EQ the sounds. How you want this may, may be getting boring, but the the decisions you made in the first half hour or hour of the mix would determine whether it was a good mix or not. Because after an hour, you would become accustomed to the way it sound sounded it. and not understand how what was wrong with it anymore. Yep. So Tony really over mixed it he overworked it and and the funny thing is and it's just a long discussion to get to this point but all those people that you know who have got problems with with um henry's dream may be interested to hear this that when i when i finally came to uh remix it for the 5.1 mixes which oh, are sure. un, yeah. unheard and nobody owns them apparently but um and 
when I was going, when I was doing that process, I was always listening to the original album and making sure that it kind of matched in the way it could with the, the feel or the idea of the way that album had been made. And I could do that with every single album except Henry's Dream mm. because when they put the tapes on and I listened to it unaffected, I simply could not start making it sound worse than it did already. <laughs> there was, I, could, I could not. So the 5.1 mix is actually a different mix. <laughs> wow. Of those albums. And it sounds great. Yeah, yeah. That's all I'll say. It sound, uh, I, I discovered I'd always had misgivings about it and always said, oh, look, the production of that album it d- didn't go well and uh, we, uh, it didn't work out well. And, in fact, it was just mixed badly twice. The recordings are fantastic. I'm deeply curious to hear these 5.1 mixes. Well, the 5.1 <laughs> mix exists. Uh, I, I could talk to uh, the powers that be about uh, what they call uh, what they called at the time, packing it down into a stereo mix Yeah, um, as a remixed version of the album, but that would be a process now talking to all sorts of people who I don't have necessarily direct relationships with, like, people at BMG and Nick's management who I get on with fine and you know all that just but it would be a real process to say hey we should reissue this as a new mix (laughs) is there an anniversary (laughs) coming up uh if there's a 20 is there uh, maybe uh, no we already passed 30 shit yeah I'm sorry um (laughs) we uh yeah, we're already past thirty, I think. Anyway, well, no, no, it was, never it mind. was uh, ninety-two, right? So there's still time. Ninety-two. Yeah, yeah. I was ninety-two. Hey, we can do a thirtieth anniversary yeah. reissue. I'll talk to Nick about it. I'll bring it up with Nick when I um, you know. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't actually really communicate with Nick much. But maybe I'll bring it up with him. Fantastic. That would that would I'll be. Talk a... to him about uh, talk to him about other stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Anita, like we've been, you know. Right. About Anita, and uh, then about some other thing, but not don't really don't really talk to him about business very much anymore. Yeah, thank yeah. God. <laughs> Just because business is a bit boring most of the time. Uh well, that that I, I hope that comes to pass. Uh, how, well, yeah, look, uh, that's a great uh, idea. I'll, I'll look into that. And it exists. It pretty much exists. I just have to oversee how the 5.1 mix got packed down into a new stereo version. Uh, it sounded so much better. And there was the, the engineers who recorded the, the stuff did a great job. And just putting the tapes up and playing them back un, un-EQ'd, nothing, they sounded great. That's awesome. It was like, how did that get the mix get destroyed so badly <laughs> twice? It was just... Uh, That also just goes to show how reliant one was on on, uh, the engineers doing their job properly. And, you know, we were always, as producing ourselves, really dependent on the engineers doing a good job and picking a good engine, choosing really good engineers. So when they failed us a couple of times, (laughs) we were, you know, there we were looking, looking like idiots. Never mind. No, it's not that bad. Obviously, the album's uh, it's a good album. I There's quite like it, songs. but I'm super. There's I'd be super curious. But I know exactly what people mean about not having that space, not having that that feel and the, the atmosphere that Bad Seeds albums yeah. have, and that album lacked that. I understand that 100. percent Yeah. 
Well, speaking of albums with a different feel, uh, I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the last Bad Seeds record you're on, Dig Lazarus Dig, the Sleazy Vegas record, I call it. And I mean that in the, the deepest love in my heart when I say that. Um, yeah, look, I, I have a difficult relationship with that album because it kind of was recorded when, uh, you know, relations weren't the best between me and, yeah. and Nick. And we were kind of, it was a bit, felt a bit tense. I mean, we were getting on fine, but there was a, there was a background tension there all the time. And so it wasn't that kind of positive an experience for me. And I also find that, um, it's a sort of transitional album where, you know, Grinder Man were in the background and, uh, it was it was hard to to separate out things and and approaches that were being used by Grinderman and other sort of things that were around from the Bad Seeds and separate them and make a Bad Seeds album yeah. in its own right and you know that impacted. I mean that doesn't necessarily adversely impact it, but I I, I do feel that the songs on there that are classic kind of bad seeds things with that classic sound have all been shunted down the end of the album and sure. the because Nick's just like a bit maybe feeling a bit like oh that just sounds like stuff we've done before right. which is fair enough too that and but, but then the stuff that's up the some of the stuff that's up the front that sounds like stuff that we haven't done before some of it's not particularly great <laughs> so that's for me. That was a bit of an issue. And, 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 you know, this is just my taste. So some people will really disagree with this. And, and if Nick hears this, he'll be appalled and defend them to the hilt and go, oh, you know, I love that song or something. But um, you know, today's lesson and Albert goes west are not exactly the best bad seed songs ever recorded. And they're shunted right up the front of the album. It's like, well, as far as I'm concerned, they shouldn't even be on the album. But, you know, that's um, – so for me, I was watching all that thinking, uh, you know, I just did I, – I felt out of step with everything as well. So, you know, there's misgivings from my side there in, in defence of other people and the things that they were doing and deciding. Um, I was sort of out of step or being uh, put out of step by things that were happening and, you know, I – I just didn't enjoy those aspects. So it ha has a kind of uh, a little bit of a bitter taste to sure, it for yeah. me, that album. And there's great stuff on there, though. I, re I really love some of the stuff in the second half. And, and you know, the the title track and um, Call Upon the Author's Brilliant. I, that's, I love that Leaders one. is yeah. fantastically weird. And, you know, yeah. so there's great things on there too. But it, uh, I just felt that the whole idea behind some of the decisions was also difficult for me to stomach and the, the tour, the subsequent tour was a bit difficult for me and then I, I left. So, you know, obviously things weren't, yeah. <laughs> weren't in their best state. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. Leave the band. So <laughs> I can ex I'll excuse a lot of those things on the basis that I, I, I was not getting along with everything. Yeah. You know, so anyway. And that's a big decision. I mean, that's that's a long. Yeah, it was a huge decision, but it was it was kind of um, it was a decision I almost made after the boatman's call. Actually, I almost left then, and um, in some ways, I could have left then, and it would have been quite a, a good move. Um, but uh, and not because I was uh, unhappy about that album either. No, it's it's, I think 
the album's fantastic. It's not, it didn't, it, it's kind of more of a solo album or it should probably have been a type of solo album than a Bad Seeds album, but it did, didn't really matter in the end because it, it came out the way it did. And um, the Bad Seeds, uh, as they were, acquitted themselves really well to, the, to a very difficult task uh, of not doing very much. And, uh, you know, so that was great. No, it was really yeah. impressive, actually. It was brilliant. So Play almost and, nothing. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> and also, interestingly, when I've heard, I, I always felt that, like, that album might just sound a bit soft and in hindsight, you know, whatever. And it was actually one of the albums that when I had to remaster or remix the things again or listen to the test pressings again, and that album came around, I was very impressed with, how raw and edgy it is. It's quite confronting, that record, yeah. in a... Um, it, it's not... It's You know, I, I suppose it's a gentle record in some ways, aspects of it, but, but it's, it's, it's a brutal it's really record. really raw. Yeah. Sorry? It's, it's a brutal record in other ways, though. Like it's, it's, it's really... But the sound and the playing, it's yeah. really raw, rough around the edges in this great way that's... Um, uh, so I really enjoyed hearing that record again. It was quite... Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a, you know, a nice experience to find that actually that that was as uncomfortable as anything else, but just in a different way. That was really nice. So, um, but that wasn't the rare. Just at the end, I think relations had soured a bit. I think I think it was probably you know I don't want to talk about drugs and stuff, but you know Nick had been had been on and off drugs all the time through the nineties, and I'd really um, there'd been really difficult things with relationships with. Uh, really close mutual friends and um, of which we had quite a few and I just I, I was just over it I just didn't want to be around it anymore yeah. but the, you know then that's exactly when he finally went in and um, stopped right. that cycle of being on and off and and he came out the other end uh, of that and he's been you know and somehow a passage of time happened. The Bad Seeds actually had a hiatus, and when he came out of that, uh, when we came out of the hiatus, um, it, it seemed like it was okay yeah. to, to to try and work out if we could keep working together. So, and we were we were both expecting kids. If we were all myself, Nick, and Warren, were all expecting kids, and it was seemed like a really it just seemed like an okay thing to do at the time to try and do and you know but it really for me out of that so then what comes after that there's like four albums and really for me only abattoir blues lyre of orpheus is a great album out of that period out of the the uh whatever what are they the noughties or whatever <laughs> well and i i think what I, they're called i can't remember i think what i think called. i think the aughts or the noughties are are uh, either one is uh, interchangeable almost the orts yeah oh okay i haven't heard that D- depending who you talk i prefer to. the orts anyway so um but Ab- you know for me that double album's the only one that is kind of great out of that period. I mean, a lot of people think that no more shall we part is nick's best album yeah and it may be on on some al- on some levels but for me it's one of the only two albums where i feel like the band is not really expressing itself yeah i can feel that the band hasn't been given free reign to to just play and contribute in a in a full way so I, you know it's funny going back to it and hearing that and going oh because I, I thought i thought the album was great when we finished it but 
that's yeah, it's one of only two albums that I feel the band is a bit missing on as a band in its contribution, and that's yeah, that's a shame. Well, you mentioned but that's probably other people that probably wouldn't affect other people's listening. It's just going to affect my listening, you know. Right. Well, understandably, because then I'm like, well, we're not, we're, you know, we're a bit shackled here. Yeah. That sounds like that to me, which is, and the other albums don't sound like that. that That's kind of the sound of the record almost, (laughs) to a certain degree. And it's. Yeah. Yep. No more shall we part. Yep. Chained together. Shackled. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Literal translation. This is is, uh, uh, the interview. How how, how long is this interview? Oh, we're we're, we're wrapping up right now. I just, I wanted to. Now that I mention it. Okay. Um, So, uh, no, I just uh, do have other things to do. We've got. uh, No, of course, of course. We've opened a a gallery and we've got a Kim Salmon Stu Thomas exhibition in there. And it's the last day, I think, in about. an hour we're having finishing drinks so i have to get around there and um and be the uh one of the hosts and things like that i better get dressed i really i really appreciate all the time you've given me i would feel like it would be disingenuous when i announced that you were going to be coming on to the show uh there was a lot of excitement as you can imagine but a lot of people really were excited about uh the you know, fairly recent-ish uh, PJ Harvey tour, uh, the ones that uh, former guest yeah. Alan Johannes was on yeah. as well. Um, really incredible reimagining and, you know, uh, ensemble effort uh, to put these songs together yeah. in this really I mean, cool way. Both the last two albums have um, both had uh, really, really, they've been constructed really interestingly and, qu- and quite methodically in a way, in the way that Polly conceived them. And then the subsequent tours both had um, quite uh, applied theatrical ideas to the presentation, which were designed not to be theatrical and, you know, <laughs> melodramatic. I use theatrical in, in terms of putting it into a setting where whereby the music would be, uh, you know, imp- um, what's the word? Um, ameliorated it would be improved you know that it would be a powerful setting for the music especially the recent music so the adaptation of some of the older pieces was a little more complicated but you know we worked through that and you know they were they were, they were but it was, it was they were really designed to present the new newer material and uh, they were incredible to do and for me very unusual not to be just wandering around the stage wherever I happen to be going, (laughs) (laughs) whatever, scratching my nose or something. But it's really kind of required you to concentrate and do the things through the course of the evening, almost, almost like, um, you know, choreographed, but in a, in a very, not, not, not like in a Motown way, but (laughs) just, uh, but it was really well structurally set up and it was, it made, one's focus really particular for me it was very interesting as a musician to do that and have um because usually you can uh, wander around and your thoughts can start wandering around too as a consequence of that and what what it it, it, uh, gave to the whole presentation was a real rigor and a focus and you were just constantly really focused into exactly what you were doing so so polly's amazing at um at conceptualizing those things and understanding that that sort of thing will happen. Cause she's very, very, uh, concentrated and 
she she doesn't sort of her, her thought patterns don't drift around yeah wild and i think she um she's doing something there where she's bringing everybody else into her focus into her type of focus so that they're really working with her so it's a really interesting process she's a pretty uh, amazing woman she she has an incredible talent for it and uh, th- that just you know struck me as a great culmination of a, a lot of <laughs> very talented utility players uh, <laughs> doing their thing. Yeah, there were a lot of multi-instrumentalists up there on that stage. Uh, brilliant ones too, I might say. That was probably the, uh, the uh, they were all better multi-instrumentalists than me. All better utility men than me. Um, and, and great, such an uh, amazing variety of types of musicians and backgrounds up there and just the bringing them all together and we all just got on so well. It was a fantastic experience, actually. And she would also choose the band and the people based on aspects of how they would interact personally as well. Yeah. You know, she's very alert to that, which is uh, was very interesting for me. I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. I'd never constructed a band like that. Sorry. Oh, I just saying it like there seemed to be this very thoughtful affinity in that way of just the the personalities yeah. involved. Like it was noticeable. Yeah. You know, and, and um, you know, we we all got on really really well, and um, you know, we all there's a lot of love there and a lot of respect, and it was it made the tour. Um, it was you know pretty special tour, as was the previous Let Love In tour. Yeah. Uh, let Love In. Let Let England Shake. Sorry. God, too, too, too many not, L's. I'm too much. Somebody get me some breakfast. Blood sugar's dropping. Uh, the Let England Shake tour was really amazing as well in that way, but obviously on a, on a different level, it's just really the four of us. And it was yeah. very intense and focused, those shows. It was, um, uh, but the same kind of thing. It was also semi-choreographed and had a theatrical kind of it was set up theatrically with her as a narrator on one the front right. one side of the stage and us as this. It was quite uh very unusual some unusual things going on there with you know that created some quite peculiar side effects in terms of how you it's just just not like being in a band on stage different you know different thing yeah it took it to a different place so which was the intention Mick Harvey, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending so much time with um, me, talking yep. at length. This is, this has been wonderful. Last thing, I have one can question and one can question only that I ever ask people. I just, I like to. Hear, oh, okay. I like to hear the answers. You can interpret this however you like, but why do you do okay. what you do? Oh, um, well, I fell into it by accident, and I found over time that I was kind of good at it. And I've just never really been able to stop doing it. And we are all very glad for that. <laughs> Was that okay? That's that's beautiful. Thank you, Mick. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Conan. And uh, I'm going to have to go and get have a shower and get dressed now. So, yeah. Um, Thanks for your time. Hope it was. Um, hope I didn't ramble too much. You, you rambled and, uh, the the exact right amount. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> if you think so, <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, good luck with everything. Until next time. Yeah. Bye. Mick Harvey, everybody. Mick fucking Harvey. Holy moly.
wow. I mean, seriously, though, wow. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did, because holy moly, did I enjoy that. <laughs> that was McCarvey, everybody. That was awesome.
was Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds featuring my guest on this show, goddamn Mick Harvey. Mick Harvey was on this show. And uh, I dare say that was, that was I, I, I got a lot out of it. I hope you guys got something out of it too. What a cool guy. I mean, what more? What more can I say here? Like it's uh, that was fantastic. I, I, I hope I hope you guys in, enjoyed that. Even even one eight I did, and uh, you know, cementing his uh, whatever he told me that he's basically the coolest guy ever, and and um, very giving of his time. Anyway, Mick Harvey's all over the internet. Doing cool stuff all the time, always. Uh, there's a mickharvey.com. He's on Instagram. Mick underscore Harvey nine. Nine? There's that many other McCarveys? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I, I, you know, hey, thanks for listening, folks. The name of the show is Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you very much for listening to it. The show airs usually Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. This is a Friday edition. Mid- midday, noon or midday, depending on which hemisphere you're in, uh, Melbourne time. And uh, good on Mick for being... Being good enough to do it, and uh, yeah, archives always free. Protonconversal.com, Patreon.com/slash Protonconversal to get episodes of the show sooner. One dollar a month will get you there. Stay safe out there, and take it easy.
welcome to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Got my radio on. 